can I tell you a little story? Please. When I, when I came here, one journalist said, anybody dumb enough to accept the job is too dumb to do it. He got a great laugh from people because it's a kind of a funny line, let's face it. But God, I said to myself, how sad for our country when we're facing some tough, tough opposition in this world uh, to, 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 to take such a, a cynical view of intelligence uh, in, in, in the 1976 time. I, I, you know, he got his laugh and I got my little hurt inside from it, but it made me determined that, that I'm going to approach this job with pride and they can have all the jokes they want on television about the CIA. It's vital to the national security of the United States. And I feel so dedicated and strongly about it that I just wanted to wedge that in, apropos of no question you've asked. How long are you going to stay? I serve with the pleasure of the president. I understand that. How long are you going to stay? I'm going to stay as long as the president wants me to stay, Mike. There's no politics in this thing for me. Good heavens. You'd have to be hallucinating to think there was any political mileage in this kind of a job. Hello, friends. It's Chaco. We're back again. It's me, Matt and Felix, coming at you uh, this rainy Thursday afternoon here in New York. And, uh, you know, I got to say, uh, either either the election is over or it will never be over. I think we are caught in between the like just just this sort of uh, 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 purgatory in between those two possible outcomes. We're but, in the quantum realm. Yeah, yeah, we're 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 Schrodinger's cat right now when it comes to the election, and like the the fact of the matter is, the election is never going to be over. Uh, even if Trump leaves the White House, I fully suspect him to basically, as I said before, become the anti-president or just start running for re-election in twenty twenty four immediately. So, uh, no no real satisfactory resolution to that. Um, outside of that, COVID is ravaging the country worse than it has ever before. Literally every state in America is now a, a hotspot, not just New York City or L.A. or elsewhere. It's fucking everywhere. And it's worse than it's ever been. And, you know, New York is on the verge of going back into curfew uh, after trying to reopen the last couple of months. Uh, that's not going to work. Uh, nothing is going to work. Um, we're stuck with this. So I think now would be a good time for us to not focus on the present. But take a trip into the past, into the annals of American history. And before you guys begin, part one of our long-anticipated history of the life and career of another one-term president. That's right, folks. I'm talking about George Herbert Walker Bush. This, is, uh, this has been sort of percolating in, in the Chapo ether for quite some time now. And we're going to give a go at narrating for you basically the the sort of background of the Bush family and the life and career of George H.W. Bush, I think up up until about the Kennedy assassination. There is just, there is so much to talk about here. There are so many different threads that uh, run through his life and connect it to, you know, these these truly grand and secret parts of American history that like, you know, we, we, will, we will not have time in this episode to get into Watergate or Iran-Contra or any of the things he did as director of the CIA or his like, you know, how he got to be director of the CIA in the first place. 
and or his presidency. So th- this will this I think I think part one we're going to do our best here to to lay out the early like life and career of George H W Bush, going from you know being a, a uh, in the in the U S Navy U S Navy pilot to a Yaley skull and bones guy to a Texas oil guy to a senator. Uh, to you know director of the cia and like just and just how like all of these threads in his family and life do seem to coalesce in dallas november 22nd 1963 i've done my best to sort of summarize and outline a lot of this information but uh hopefully my co-hosts uh felix and matt will be able to fill in some of the gaps and you know we'll just we'll just see where this takes us um i should say off off the bat that a lot of the information I'm going off here is comes courtesy of journalist Russ Baker's book, Family of Secrets. And I think it should be noted uh, before we go much further that the uh, the book Family of Secrets was excoriated by his fellow journalists and people like at the Washington Post and Los Angeles Times and the book reviews and his fellow journalists when it came out. I just want to read one clip here. Um, uh, Tim Rutten, former media critic for the Los Angeles Times, uh, described the book as an example of the paranoid style of literature as described by Richard Hofstetter. Um, he says here, what makes Baker's book singularly offensive is the way it recklessly impugns in the most disgusting possible way the reputations not simply of men and women now dead, but of the living. So, guys, let's do it. I mean, if there's one thing we're good at, it is calumny directed against. Oh, my God. Defaming folks is a, is a key core competency over here. I mean, you know, like a lot yeah. of the, a lot of the crit- criticisms of the book is that it relies heavily on sort of innuendo, guilt by association, and just sort of seeming to suggest a, a, a uniting thread to disparate events and people that may not warrant it. But when you do assemble all those disparate events and people as it relates to the life of George H.W. Bush, a certain outline does begin to shape, take shape. And I think like a good comparison to this book would be Tom O'Neill's chaos in that there is sort of one inciting fact or incident that put Baker on this fucking lifelong fucking trip down this endless rabbit hole of like the, basically the secret history of power in America in the last like latter half of the 20th century. And it's such that there's an astonishing amount of information is gathered and marshaled to like, you know, to like point towards the, the outlines of something that suggests something sinister, but there is never, of course, going to be anything close to a capital T journalistic truth standard of like a definitive answer to anything. But that is that has never stopped us in the past. Reading reading Family of Secrets, uh, I've been reading it at the same time as I've been reading uh, NATO's Secret Armies, and uh, one thing I was wishing during all of this is that. I do think Robert Moses is uh, Robert Caro's book about Robert Moses, the power broker, is an essential book for understanding America and specifically understanding New York and why um, one of the reasons why American cities are the way they are. But I wish he had undertaken this effort about George H. W. Bush <laughs> because okay, comparing him to Trump, comparing one-term presidents. At the end of the day, all Trump has done his entire life. And all he did in the presidency was ride a wave and then just do the bare minimum once he got in there. H.W. created the wave. Yeah. Yeah. His entire life, his entire life, he's always been everywhere. We aren't going to give you any definitive theories of what we 100% think happened. Uh, You should go back to our JFK episode. You know, we have theories. But – in every theory we could present with the information we have, 
Um, in the same way that Robert Moses built the modern New York, George H.W. Bush did build the modern America and the modern American empire. And then yeah. he got turfed out of office after one term because the GDP did a whoopsie for three months. After, That's the way she goes. After, his enti- after an entire life spent like, playing the American political economy like a Stradivarius, eating a mile of shit and, and uh, uh, being condescended to by certified Alzheimer's patient uh, Ronald Reagan so that he could have a chance to finally – and cleaning up Iran-Contra for him uh, and then grabbing the brass ring setting up a war to happen so that you can be like the fucking, you know, the, the Charlemagne of the post cold war era. And then, uh, this hillbilly with a saxophone says, you don't, you're not sad <laughs> enough that like it costs a lot of money to buy milk now. And you don't know yeah. what a, what no, a cash took, register looks yeah, like. Yeah. All it took was a him lifetime. not knowing how a, a checkout works with yeah. the laser scanning yeah. of the barcode. A lifetime of service to Moloch and the deep state. And the guy who beat, who, just gets it under the wire, gets in there, young upstart to take over the position as Moloch's general secretary on Earth. Yep. Is I'm just a small town pedophile. <laughs> That's the guy. That's the way she goes, man. Uh, yeah. That's the way she goes in life. It's it's the law of the road, Bubs. It's the law of the road. Um, and then also, I mean, it, it should also be noted that the. The real f- culmination and fulfillment of the Bush family legacy, the, the two-term champion, George W. Bush, his eldest son, um, destroyed all of it. Just destroyed all of it. And now the Bush name is forever associated with basically incompetence, failure, and the death of the American empire. And not its, uh, not its golden age. This is sort of the, this is the golden age arc of the American deep state as seen through the life of George H.W. Bush. So, uh, before we get into that, I think it bears just, just going through briefly here as quickly as possible the lineage of the entire Bush family in the United States of America. And, uh, Chris, our producer was uh, nice enough to put together this, 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 uh, abridged version of the uh, the legacy of the Bush family in America, starting with H.W.'s uh, great, 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 great grandfather, Timothy Bush Sr., who lived from 1735 to 1815. He was a, a Revolutionary War militia captain. And that is um, uh, about, about as much as is important to know about him. Then we have his great, great, great grandfather, Timothy Bush Jr., who lived from 1776 to 1850, who was a blacksmith. His great great grandfather, Obadiah Bush, was a schoolmaster in Rochester, New York, an abolitionist, and in fact, vice president of the American Anti Slavery Society, um, and then eventually struck out for California in the 1849 gold rush. Uh, wanted to move his family out there, but died on a boat returning to the East Coast to uh, wrap up his affairs and was, in fact, buried at sea off Cape Horn in South America. Then you've got his great-grandfather, James Smith Bush, from, who lived from 1825 to 1889. And this is where we begin to see the outlines of like uh, of what, what we know of and think of as the Bush dynasty. This guy or a direct, one of his direct antecedents are the Bushes who like met a man at a crossroads late at night who, was st- who had like a vicious dog in a, in a completely white suit and had him sign <laughs> his name in a book. This is where this is where the deal got made for the Bushes. And, and, wh- and what evidence do we have of this? 
of course, James Smith Bush was the first Bush to attend Yale. He was in yes. the Yale class of That's where they have it. All the professors are are are, are demons, and they all yeah. they all have a, they all have a deal to make with you. They've all got a lot to offer you um, in in this world and the next. Um, James Bush Senior was also an Episcopal priest. He uh, had a stint at Grace Church in San Francisco, as well as uh, Church of the Ascension in West Brighton, at West Brighton, Staten Island, actually, uh, but left in scandal after a church raffle for a gold watch was considered gambling. So he had to leave the church after a, <laughs> after a church raffle gambling scandal. Um, of course, and then he became a Unitarian in 1888 and died suddenly while raking leaves in 1889. Known as the Unitarian's Curse, folks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Those leaves, they'll get you. Okay. Then we got grandfather Samuel Prescott Bush, 1863 to 1948. Uh, Samuel Prescott Bush was the general manager of the Buckeye Steel Casting Company, which was a firm run by Frank Rockefeller, brother of John D. Uh, clients of Buckeye Steelcasting included uh, railroads controlled by E.H. Harriman. And, of course, the Bush and Harriman families became closely associated for two generations. And Harriman de- the Harriman clan definitely shows up in H.W.'s life and, like, basically everything swirling around oil, yeah, the CIA, if, if, and money. If the Bushes are the Soprano family and Zapata slash Dresser, that's Barone Sanitation – I would call the Harrimans the Aprils. Yes, definitely. Um, let's see. We got here uh, in, in 1908. Frank Rockefeller retires, and uh, Press Samuel Prescott Bush becomes president of Buckeye Castings, and be, basically becomes one of the top industrialists of the early 20th century. He then became chief of ordnance, small arms, and ammunitions on the War Industries Board during World War One. He served on the Federal Reserve Bank of Cleveland and was appointed to President Herbert Hoover's Committee for Unemployment Relief in 1931. <laughs> I'm sure he, and he did a great job at ending uh, unemployment and the Depression, so much so that uh, FDR became president shortly thereafter. Okay, then we get to George H.W. Bush's father, the great Prescott Sheldon Bush, who was another Yaley and another Skull and Bones member who was rumored to be among the bonesmen who uh, supposedly dug up and removed the skull of Apache leader Geronimo. And apparently that skull still is used in Skull and Bones. That is, that is basically the skull in the name Skull and Bones refers to Geronimo's skull, one of the great, uh, I don't know, fighters against the American state that has ever lived. Um, they dug up his skull and have been jacking off into it like a fucking sock for the last you know few generations of that is the definition of, of a sore winner. Yeah. It's like you've uh, got the entire continent to wreak your dark arts upon. Why do you got to do this like awful end zone dance? Yeah. I mean I mean yeah they're they're desecrating so, yeah. the 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 mortal remains of one of the great you know heroes of history really one of the great figures of resistance to uh the the american state that's ever lived um and yeah they're they are still desecrating his corpse to this day as part of their you know fruity rituals which induct each successive new generation of the ruling class um Um, the most of prescott's life is very sordid and most of his activities at yale are repulsive most of his activities later in life are even more repulsive a thoroughly awful American who did awful things his entire life. But little bit of fun trivia. He was the first member of the Bush family 
to be a member of the Yale cheerleading squad. <laughs> yeah, yes. Tradition yes. followed by his son and grandson. <laughs> yes. He was a male cheerleader at Yale. Um, he would then go on to be a field artillery captain in the American Expeditionary Force of World War One, during which he received intelligence training and served with the French officer corps. So basically that he received intelligence training from the guys and paths of glory that uh, directed an artillery barrage at their own troops. <laughs> that's that's who he was associating with during World War One. Um, he it was then sort of an, uh, a, a, a sort of jack of all trades businessman. He worked for uh, the hard the hardware rubber and merch, rubber companies as well as uh, merchant banks, um, and then uh, also was accused of being a conspirator in the 1934 business plot. Uh, yes, with this, the business plot was a conspiracy and basically uh, a near coup that was organized by American business leaders to overthrow uh, FDR as president. And because he was, you know, going to turn America Bolshevik, Bolshevik. Uh, this was, of course, the one that uh, Smedley Butler famously uh, blew the whistle on. Yeah. Just, just some guys being dudes. Um, and then he, of course, and then after his involvement in the business plot, he became a senator from 1952 to 1963. Um, he was one of the seven founding directors of the Union Banking Company, which was an investment bank that operated as a clearinghouse for Germ the German interest of Fritz Tyson, one of the primary early bankrollers of the Nazi movement, and of course the Tyson Krupp Company, known for their good or you, bad elevators, depending on what yeah, kind of you, brain damage you, you have. <laughs> you you judge which part of his legacy is darker. <laughs> you know, to you. By the way, the the Krupps uh, in Tyson Krupp. They're also Nazi collaborators. They were the arms manufacturer. So that's all like ThyssenKrupp is Nazis all the way down. Yeah. Uh, you know, Mr. O Mr. O Mr. Otis never called me kike. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the Union Banking Corporation held gold on behalf of German banking interests during World War II through the Dutch bank Bank of Voorhandel. In 1942, the bank was seized under the Trading with the Enemy Act after it was discovered to be holding and trading funds on behalf of the Tyson family. Up what? To eight, oh, no. Up to eight months after the U.S. declared war on Germany. Oh, so, dip. Sorry. Well, well, you know, sometimes you just don't get around to things. Exactly. You know, it was it on the happen. list for a long time, but other stuff kept coming up. Yeah, they didn't have email chains back then. It's true. The workflow was dog shit. Yeah. Oh, I forgot. I forgot about uh, the war. My bad. <laughs> Prescott Bush was also involved with the Consolidated Silsian Steel Company, or CSSC, which uh, split ownership between uh, Frederick Flick and Brown Brothers Harriman. There's that Harriman family again, uh, where Bush worked under the Silesian American Corporation. Uh, Flick's plants in Poland... Uh, made heavy use of concentration camp slave labor in the 30s and was later you, found guilty of war crimes at Nuremberg. Uh, well, I have, no, what? A few mistakes. Uh, Prescott Bush, of course, actively intervened in Germany during the 30s to manage BBH interests. That was Brown Brothers Harriman, uh, including dispatching F John Foster Dulles, then of the law firm Sullivan and Cromwell, to manage liability to American directors. Uh, ev his evidence of ownership of SAC over the German CSSC mysteriously vanishes post-1935. Uh, however, according to journalist John Joftis, 
Quote, at various times, the Bush family has tried to spin it, saying they were owned by a Dutch bank, and it wasn't until Nazis took over Holland that they realized how the Nazis had controlled their apparent company, uh, had apparently controlled their company. And this is why Bush supporters claim when the war was over, they got their money back. Both the American Treasury investigations and the intelligence investigations in Europe completely belie that. It's absolute horseshit. They always knew who the ultimate beneficiaries were. Uh, Prescott is also long rumored to have taken $1.5 million, that's $24.8 million in 2020 currency, a payout from his father-in-law, George Herbert Walker of BBH for this, though no conclusive paper trail has ever been found. So he basically, he took a huge cash settlement to cover up uh, the Harriman's family's collaboration with the Nazis during World War II. So yeah, that is just, that is but just a few of the highlights of grandfather Prescott Bush's career. Um, which is one, yeah, that is that is marked by being like one of the titans of industry in America in the early 20th century, and then tried to overthrow FDR's government in a military coup, and then uh, basically profited from concentration camp slave labor and uh, covered and just laundered just God knows how much money for the Nazis and created how many jobs? Yeah, you didn't even say because you don't care. So here's where we I think we should begin our story with George H. W. Bush. And it all begins um, when uh, basically uh, Russ Baker says he would like like this. This is this was the uh, the the premier magazine, uh, you know, uh, 50th anniversary of the Manson killings uh, or, or whatever, like the 25th anniversary of the Manson killings. What was it? When did Tom O'Neill start with that? I forget. It was but, 90, 90, 98. Or, yeah, 99. So uh, the, like the, the little factoid that led him down this rabbit hole is when he discovered a mention in a report that George H.W. Bush claimed that he could not remember where he was on November 22nd, <laughs> 1963, which is a astonishingly odd thing to say for any adult alive in America on that day. It is, it is weird. The, That's like the one thing. It's like 9-11. Like, they, everyone knows exactly where they were when they heard that that happened. That is – it's – the thing that's always fucked with me about this is – why couldn't he come up with a lie? Yeah. Like, out of all people to not lie about it, why not him? Yeah. And he was there. For, he had a cover. He was there to meet a bunch of Texas oil men. Well, you know, nothing suspicious about that. <laughs> nothing. <laughs> nothing. I think I think H.W. Uh, Bush has said in other in other places that he was, quote, somewhere in Texas on that day but he of course i don't, I don't know I, I i might have been grassy it might have been rocky i i was it was just it was a knoll of some kind is all I'll stipulate <laughs> <laughs> but um we should begin here with uh like uh one of the first um sort of uh keys that unlock this whole saga is that i i forget when but it was sometime in the 1980s the entertainment journalist uh joseph mcbride who worked for the uh, uh daily variety at the time uh, came across a memo in the archives of the University of San Bernardino while re researching a book about the life of Frank Capra. And he got off on a tangent in the microfiche section about the JFK assassination. Uh, McBride had been a volunteer for the Kennedy campaign. And of course, like you know, most Americans, has always remained interested in the unanswered questions about Dallas. He found this memo from J. Edgar Hoover, which was dated November 29th, 1963, that was titled Assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It reported that the day after the assassination, the Bureau gave a briefing to two men in Dallas, 
one, a Captain William Edwards of the DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, and a Mr. George Bush of the Central Intelligence Agency. It briefed these men on the activity of anti-Castro Cubans. And McBride, while reading this, you know, thought Mr. George Bush of the Central Intelligence Agency, surely this wasn't the same person as the current vice president of the United States. Now, keep in mind here, Bush had been the director of the CIA for about a year and came to, I mean, during the 70s, during the late 70s, he was appointed director of the CIA. And he came in during a time of intense pressure on the agency related to the previous decades worth of fuck ups and embarrassment. Um, there was, of course, the Kennedy assassination and the uh, Warren Commission. And then there are all the revelations of how the CIA had used private foundations to channel funds to organizations inside the United States, such as the National Student Organization. Then, of course, there was Watergate and then the whole fucking just the, uh, the number of CIA operatives such as E. Howard Hunt that were all associated with it. And this whole like, you know, like the Church Commission and H.W. Bush was chosen at the time seemingly because he had no connections to the CIA or any of its bad shit over the last decade or so and was considered something of a lightweight. Uh, he was named by Gerald Ford and uh, I'm quoting from Russ Baker here. He seemed wholly unqualified for the, for the position, especially at a time when the agency was under maximum scrutiny. He had been U.N. ambassador, Republican National Committee chairman and U.S. envoy to Beijing, where both Nixon and Henry Kissinger had regarded him as a lightweight and worked around him. What experience did he have in the world of intelligence and spying? Or how would he restore public confidence in a tarnished spy agency? No one seemed to know. Or did Gerald Ford realize something that most others didn't? And that is, as this memo would seem to imply, George H.W. Bush has had a much longer association with the CIA than one that began with him being appointed director of the agency in 1976. Yeah, um, the CIA also... The cover for this memo is very interesting uh, that they get into in Family of Secrets. Uh, the initial response to it was that uh, there was another George Bush who worked for the CIA. Yeah, yeah uh, right. The yeah. guy who worked right. in like yeah, the right. fucking uh, mailroom or something. Yeah, yeah, he was basically – he was – whatever Lloyd does for Ari and Entourage, that was his job at the CIA. He just got mail and probably just got yelled at by Mormons and alcoholics. <laughs> or, al like, or alcoholic oh, yeah, Mormons. Yeah. Those yeah. are the best CIA agents, the Mormons who oh, yeah. drink. The best – It's oh, you know, The, the craziest real, CIA but, agents are the Mormons who drink and the Irish who don't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. But um, so the failed George Bush, this guy who didn't really have a clearance, was a clerk, like a glorified intern who only worked nights, which is <laughs> the, six, the 50s and 60s were awesome. You could get a night job at the CIA if you were white. If you were a white Protestant, people would be, yeah, g go ahead, work the night shift on the CIA <laughs> and make, you know, a $2 an hour, which is enough to buy a nine-bedroom house in Silver Springs. But uh, I, I digress. He had no clearance. Why would they send George Bush, the night desk worker, a memo about threats on President Kennedy's life? An interagency memo, which you have to yeah. have very high clearance to uh, be debriefed on. And it was a memo that was specifically related to the a activities of anti-Castro Cubans and this idea that um, that they, they might use the confusion or uh, implications of a Kennedy assassination to launch like a second 
wave of attacks against Cuba. And they wanted to, they, they wanted to keep these guys in pocket. So yeah, like the, the memo was all related to the like connections to anti-Castro Cubans, which is of course a huge part of the Kennedy assassination. Now, um, McBride followed up about this memo and contacted the White House. Uh, he never uh, talked to George H.W. Bush directly, but did talk to uh, Stephen Hart, who was a member of the administration and I think part of the national security team, who responded to him by quoting Bush directly, who says, quote, I was in Houston, Texas at the time and involved in an independent oil drilling business, and I was running for Senate in late 1963. I don't have any idea of what he was talking about. Uh, must be another George Bush, is how it concluded. Um, now, after and then McBride went on to publish a piece about this memo in the Nation, and the, after that piece came out, and like no one made much of a deal of it, it was you know barely noticed. But he, following up on that, the CIA told him, and that in response to this article, that it was indeed another George Bush, the one that Felix referred to, a man named George. William Bush, who that they was, you know, on their payroll at the time, but now apparently the CIA, a, you know, one of the most powerful government agencies in the world with billions of dollars at their disposal, could not find George William Bush. However, Joseph McBride did track him down. And in 1988, he was working as a claims representative for the Social Security Administration. And as Felix uh, out, laid out earlier, he explained that he had been worked only briefly at the CIA as a probationary civil servant and only in Langley, Virginia. He was in the CIA headquarters in November 1963 and never in his career received any briefings and, and, and certainly not any interagency briefings during his career. Now, if we jump ahead in time now to 2006, there is another declassified document that came to, comes to light. Uh, this one dates to 1975, right before George H.W. Bush became CIA director, that flatly states that the man soon to be in charge of the relationship had of the agency had a relationship with the agency that dates back all the way into 1953. It says here, quote, he became aware of this project through Mr. Thomas J. Devine, a, a former CIA staff employee and later oil wildcatting associate of Mr. Bush. Their joint activities culminated in the establishment of Zapata Oil in 1953, which they eventually sold. After the sale of Zapata Oil, Mr. Bush went into politics and Mr. Devine became a member of the investment firm Train Cabot and Associates New York. They attached a memorandum describes the close relationship between Mr. Devine and Bush in 1967 to 1968, which, according to Mr. Allen, continued while Mr. Bush was our ambassador to the United Nations. Uh, now, keep in mind here, so this figure, Thomas Devine, who was the guy who founded uh, Zapata Petroleum, Zapata Oil, and Zapata Offshore with Mr. Bush, with, with George H.W. Bush, when he broke into the oil industry in Texas, was a CIA agent. However... Thomas Devine resigned from the agency at the age of 27, which is highly unusual considering all the training he would have had to, all the training, time, and money that would have been invested in someone like Thomas Devine being part of the agency. However, it's not so strange when you consider the CIA has a long history of people, quote-unquote, resigning to go on to work in the private sector. And, of course, Zapata Petroleum was established in 1953. So here we get into Zapata oil and the entire oil business, which is, of course, from its inception in America, always been joined at the hip with like the sort of national security state, the deep state, even before those were a thing. Long before the OSS existed or the CIA existed, 
basically oil companies and the attorneys at the law firms that represented them basically were well-versed in sort of proto-espionage. And indeed, many of the early recruits to the OSS, which would then become the CIA, were from the oil industry precisely because they had experience with international spying on competitors and industrial espionage. H.W. Uh, and Divine found Zapata Oil in 1953, and it basically is becomes the perfect cover for both international travel and the recruitment of you know assets and operatives for the CIA. But however, H.W.'s history with intelligence goes back to even before his World War One experience, and you know that is when he joined the Navy at 18 in 1942. And he, in Norfolk, Virginia, received training as both a torpedo pilot, but also as an aerial photographer as part of something called Operation Snapshot, which was a highly secret, like it was directed at the Japanese, but it was basically, it was like using spy planes and what would become the same technology of like the U-2 spy planes. This was a very, very early version of using like get intelligence gathering through aerial photography. Operation Snapshot was so secret that you could be court-martialed for even saying the name Operation Snapshot while it was in operation. According to a book by Robert Stinnett, uh, who was also a Navy pilot during World War II, Admiral Mark Mitscher uh, hit the bulkhead, quote, when he saw that the Bush, Bush's team had filed a report in which they actually referred by name to this top secret project. The three people above Bush and his command were made to take razor blades to the pages of the report and remove the forbidden language. Now, according to Baker, this is Bush's first the first time Bush had been stung by the disclosure of information. And he learned the lesson very well throughout the rest of his life in terms of excising information about people, places, and things that you did that were agency or sort of covert related that like you just don't talk about them or you use PR and obfuscation to manage those facts in your biography and resume. But from there, after World War II, of course, H.W. goes to Yale which was by then a farm team for the CIA. I mean, like, yeah, that is, that's, that's the equivalent. Like we've basically replaced covert, uh, rule in our empire with just overt military rule. Now, like the CIA is just another arm of JSAC. So the, the, the modern day equivalent would be, uh, like a buds training or like the seal seal program. Yeah. Seal teams. It's nothing really shows American cultural degeneration more than replacing, as Will said, the Mormon alcoholics and the Irish teetotalers. <laughs> Interesting characters, your hard drinking Angletons, Edwin P. Wilson always in his bag. All, all, all our guys. All our guys. Oh, God. Frank Weiser just skitzing out at every dinner party. <laughs> they were. See, they had, they had, they had a good guys. time. They had, they, they had, they some, had dudes. Good time. They had some dudes. Uh, there was a, there was a, Gottlieb just pranking Frank Olson <laughs> with the old acid in the drink. <laughs> Uh, I mean, there, there's a quote so here. They've been, they've been replaced by, yeah, SEALs. I mean, I think it was something crazy like three or four of Trump's initial cabinet appointees were yep. former Navy SEALs. Yeah, that zinky or, asshole who like was just yeah. stealing the fucking uh, – he was just taking the f- toilet paper out of the bathrooms <laughs> at the yeah. Department of the yeah. Interior. And, and created his own challenge with. coins for the Department of the yes. Interior. Yeah. Navy SEALs, lo- they love stealing. But uh, – <laughs> They're sort of the perfect – their role at the forefront of the American empire now as a public face of it, it reminds me of what Patrick Wyman said about how 
the late stage of Empire always signals the death of the country because the frontier comes home. Yes. The Navy SEAL is the ideal frontiersman because he has no affections, uh, is a completely heartless killer. Hard, desolate, the killer, like D.H. Lawrence said. Yeah. Yeah. But almost, I w- actually not even just like heartless. I, they have like a lust for killing. Yeah. I love it. That is, that is like unmatched by even some of their predecessors. And their main thing is their aesthetic, their frontier aesthetic, the long beards, the fucking cool knives. The Kifa. Yeah, the tactical uh, clothing that we resell to suburban fatsos. And it is, I mean, it was awful when the CIA ran things. It was awful when, you know, we ran things through just a battery of NATO bureaucracy. It was awful when it was, you know, the free trade troika under Clinton. But this really fucking sucks. This really sucks dick. I hate this. Yeah. <laughs> I hate the Navy SEALs. Some asshole. It's like, look, you know, J- James Angleton will like sit in the dark drinking and staring at a wall. And you guys are like doing fucking TikToks where you're lip syncing while <laughs> shooting watermelons with BLM written on them. Yeah. So you yeah, can you sell can... fucking uh, <laughs> coffee to rubes. Yeah. 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 Edwin, yeah. At least they had bigger imaginations back then. Wilson made what, like four hundred million selling shit to Libya. <laughs> yeah. It's like these fucking hicks are just doing summer, like doing Anavar ass injection parties, and then doing somersaults <laughs> to commemorate to commemorate people who died in an experimental helicopter crash. <laughs> like, no, yeah, no, Felix. I, yeah, uh, yeah I, I was like, in my reading for this, I, 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 I didn't write it down. I forget who said it, but there was a quote from one of these these early CIA guys from like a, a memoir or a statement that someone reported about him about those years. And he just said, man, the fun we had. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that sums it up. You know, these, these, these were like, you know, sort of like preppy college boys who were, you know, they were, they were given the world to run and, you know, like they, they did it through, you know, just imbibing quarts of scotch, wife swapping, and, you know, uh, wearing smart ties and tweed jackets and shit. Riding We're- Kim Philby around your solarium <laughs> like a dog. We, you know what? And, that, and then today, born, it's, it's the Black Rifle it, yeah. Coffee guys yeah. just yelling at you on a TikTok video, as Matt said, about, like, what a pussy you are for drinking Starbucks. Yeah, it, like, it used to be all these alcoholics sitting around completely naked in a really hot office, totally wet, and <laughs> reciting reciting poetry in Greek, yeah. even though they were wasted beyond repair. And now it's, like, these guys, yeah, making TikToks to Aaron Lewis songs and crying. <laughs> like, it Makes sucks, me sick man. how far we done fell. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know, just just to return to Yale and like the era of of George H. Uh, w. Bush's graduating class. I don't know if it was his graduating class or the one before it, but like just to give you like an idea of what a farm team it was for the CIA, thirty five men from one of the graduating classes would go on to work for the agency. Thirty five <laughs> guys went to the same fucking place, and and that's just of we know of. And yeah. You know, here comes H.W., his father, Prescott. He's got, you know, he's got Yale fucking pedigree going back two generations. He has already has experience in Navy intelligence under his belt because of World War II. And of course, he joins Skull and Bones at Yale. Oh, just yeah. Like, just like Where his he father. he jacks off in a coffin next to Geronimo's skull. Just a real like thing his father. that he really did. Not a joke. Mm-hmm. Yep. 
Uh, he was also, as a Bonesman, he was nicknamed Mammon. And Mammon was a nickname that every class had, and it was for the horniest guy in the class. <laughs> so one oh, thing we know about a Poppy is that he was, uh, he was laying pipe of some kind or another. Well, if I can get into phrenology a little bit, Poppy does have the skull and build of a guy with a dick that's too wide for his body. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I have a uh, I have a good friend who um, had about Poppy's build, and he was just like, we lived in the same we lived in an attic together when we lived in St. Paul, Minnesota. We were both very broke, and he would just walk around naked, and it was just like nine inches flat. <laughs> It was the most insane thing I've ever seen, and that's what I think Poppy was like. Probably, he was well, he was uh, he was he was hanging dong. Well, here, I mean, but like, here's the thing about Skull and Bones, right? It's that it it is the oldest secret society of the American Ivies, but what mm-hmm. does it really do? Right? I mean, like, I mean, on 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 the surface, it is like Bohemian Grove, this kind of like fruity theater kid thing. Where right. it's like the, yes. the, these preppies have the, their little dinner clubs and they dress in costumes and they sing songs and they have these like weird rituals, like you said, where you jack off in a coffin with Geronimo's fucking skull. And that, you know, you, you do like uh, you have to confess all of your deepest secrets and like a group of men who are like, you know, nude from the waist up or just or from the waist down. And I forget how the ritual goes, but it's all it's all this kind of like, you know, just, yeah, like I said, like like Bohemian Grove. It's a lot of this theater kid shit. Yeah. That is just you know like it has like a a tinge a of the for these rich yeah. rich fancy Fauntleroy. It, it, you know it has a, it has a tinge of the sinister, but when you really get down to it, I mean it, it's it's pretty stupid. But yeah. but here's the thing: what is it really all about? Like these secret societies and their secret rituals and their secret code words and their secret fucking handshakes and all that bullshit. What is it really all about? It's about proving that you can keep secrets. Mm-hmm. that's exactly how that's what it that's that that is 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 that is its function and that is why skull and bones and yale and princeton and places like that minted this entire generation of like business intelligence news and military leaders who i mean again it's not a conspiracy all of these people were friends all of these people went to the same schools all their dads were friends all these people like, yeah. were literally in the same secret societies with each other. Going back to criticisms of Family of Secrets, I mean, yes, I do think there is probably some journalist, journalistic malpractice in the book. But in the end, if you intend to write a – intend to make a full counting of this family and specifically of H.W., you have to work on innuendos and circumstantial evidence – because so much of this is undocumented you only see the result because so much of this is a result of these people first meeting each other when they were 18 and fucking jerking off in a coffin (laughs) all of this is said without record without anyone writing it down without anyone seeing it and then it just happens yeah you that is what you have to work with yeah and and felix like i mean to, to this point it's like you're also left with only innuendo because these people are very very adept at making sure that that is all that you have to go off of based on their fucking yes. resume and life story i mean like as per the example about operation snapshot and him getting getting reamed out for just even saying the word in an official memo i mean this is why 
you know, George H. H. W. Bush in his memoirs has nothing about Dallas 1963. It has nothing about where he was or what he was doing or any, any, even any recollection of the assassination itself or mention of it. In fact, the only sources we have to go off that are Barbara Bush's book where she like let slide, you know, some cover for what they were up to or what they were doing in Dallas and Houston at the time. Yeah, yeah, it's it's all things that if you talk about them, it's just designed to make you sound like a crank. But it's like he can't say what he was doing because whether these are all possibilities that he did nothing, that he had a tad of involvement, that he hid the real killer's gun, that he personally did it, which I think is the most ridiculous. That's the least incredible one. Yeah, right. But no matter which one it is, if he says anything, you could start pulling at the yarn and and unravel some of it. And the point is to never unravel any of it. To even even the thing that looks off that you know is off. Things like you know the boats in the Bay of Pigs assassinations being codenamed Houston and Barbara, things like that to make you sound like an asshole when you just point to the fringes of it that we all know are there. We all know it's there. We all know there's something there, but there's not enough written down for you to definitively say, yeah, he fucking killed JFK. Yeah. It's funny to say. I like saying it, but, uh, you know, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, because look, these people all communicate by, like, uh, wasp telepathy, just a yes. collection of, of uh, hand gestures and, uh, and, and winks and translucent uh, vein in the temple throbbing. <laughs> yeah. H.W., <laughs> H.W. is so interesting to me, and his life is so interesting to me, especially in the wake of Donald Trump. I think this is the perfect time to record this and look into this because I – have you guys – we're going to talk about this in part two, H.W. the politician. But did you guys ever watch that 60 Minutes interview with H.W. in 1980 I posted? No, yeah. no, I haven't. Um, it's very interesting because the questions they ask him are – Hey, are you too nice to be the president? Yep. Are you a wimp? What's the what's yeah. with the wimp factor? And and the whole wimp thing is it ended up being kind of his undoing. But that was, it was, the, by that was on the his cover of own music, design, right? Wimp yeah, it president. was it was by his own design. It's like okay, my choices are people see me as the heartless killer who snuffed out American Camelot and a lifelong spook and God knows what else. Or I'm like a bit of a fuddy duddy. <laughs> yeah. Oh, what yeah. do I want? Oh, what do I, I want? Like Brussels sprouts. Yeah. And it's. I think it's so interesting in the wake of Trump, who is a fucking pussy, but goes the opposite direction. Like ev- everyone goes the opposite direction of HW now, where they are these evil fucking people, but also wusses. Also, never would have been able to. Yeah. You know, fly naval combat missions to the Pacifics in the forties, or pull the trigger on an American president. Uh, they make a big showing with, yeah, Black Rifle Coffee Company or open carrying in Starbucks, when really they're as pink-bellied and resentful and bitter and queenish as Trump is. Yeah, yeah. Everything degenerates over time. Um, before before I get into uh, Poppy's career. After college, uh, Matt, what was the thing about the circumstances surrounding the medal he received for valor during World War II, where like he bailed out of his plane before uh, his crew could? 
yeah, that's the deal. Is that yeah, he was yeah. A, a, a bomber pilot, and the plane got shot down, and there was controversy for years that he basically let the let the guys go down. <laughs> that he got out at uh, just like see you guys later. Uh, and, and he was their officer, right? Like he was, he yeah. was the yes, commanding, he was the officer, commanding officer, and he was first. He was fir- he was first out of the door, right? First out the door, yes. Hope you go. Hope you guys got an inner tube. Yeah. <laughs> he and almost then, and, and then, then he, famously then he, uh, at the age of he went, ninety, he uh, went skydiving as, as in sort of a uh, a reenactment of having to bail out of his uh, his plane after it getting uh, blown up. And yeah. if I did it by OJ Simpson. <laughs> <laughs> uh, All right, so. Let's 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 move on to his his post collegiate life. Uh, once he graduated Yale, Poppy, aka HW, was immediately hired by a company called Dresser Industries, the SR Dresser Manufacturing Company. It was okay. The H, the SR Dresser Manufacturing Company was a small but largely unexceptional firm, but that found eager buyers in Prescott Bush's Yale friends. Roland and W. Averill Harriman, the sons of the railroad tycoon E.H. Harriman, a.k.a. the April family, um, and that they had recently uh, set up a merchant bank to assist wealthy families in such endeavors. Uh, Dresser um, basically made its money because it held the patents on two very valuable pieces of oil extraction technology. And their whole business model was not based on the idea that they would own or extract the oil themselves, but they would have the copyright on the technology that you would need to extract the oil and that they would have right. a monopoly on that. You don't get rich in the gold rush by getting gold. You get it by selling shovels. But uh, I have a little section to read on uh, Dresser. It involves a little Uncle Magic. Hell yes. Uncle Neil, baby. Hiring decisions by the Bonesmen at the Harriman firm were presented as jolly and distinctly informal, with club and family being prime qualifications. The one Harriman partner, Knight Woolley, a Yale and Bones Confere. Knight Woolley. Of Prescott Bushes tells it Malin simply wandered into their offices at the precise moment they were deciding who would run the newly acquired dresser. Malin was flush from a recent six month mountaineering holiday <laughs> with the help when he, st- when he stopped in for a visit. Roland, ha- Roland Harriman turned and pointed at Malin, then uttered the words, Dresser! Dresser! Upon which Malin was escorted into the office of Prescott's father-in-law, George Herbert Walker, then president of Harriman and Company, for a pro forma job interview. Walker promptly installed Mellon as president. Yeah, Neil Mallon, who was known to HW as Uncle Neil, hired him in 1948 and after Prescott installed uh, Neil Mallon at the helm of Dresser Industries. And as Felix said, Mallon's primary credential was that he was, quote, one of them. He was, yeah, he was a Yaley Uncle Magic. and a Scully. No, yeah, that is... I want everyone to, like, everyone... We've got some people in the professional class who listen. You know, you, there's so much you probably have to go through for your job, right? Like, you, you probably have to go through 10 rounds of interviews, two stages of group interviews. You had to, like, I don't know, go hitchhiking with your supervisor to prove that you can solve problems. I don't know what you have to do. <laughs> I haven't worked an actual job in, like, 10 years. But... Imagine if you could just go on vacation for six months just because, and then you just you wander in to visit your dumbass friends, and they're like, "Hey, do you want to make like a million dollars a year?" And you're like, "Yeah, I guess." <laughs> cool life. 
Now, yeah, it really did rule. Now, here's the, here's the deal, though. I mean, like, uh, this is all around, like, the American oil industry, which is, of course, a very strategic business for, quote, national security. Um, it, you know, you need oil to have a Navy, Army, and Air Force, and American oil had driven the American war machine during World War II and, like, basically is one of the reasons, you know, America was able to... Uh, win in, in World War II is its productive capacity and like its endless supply of oil. However, by the end of World War II, America had basically like we still had plenty of petroleum, but we had exhausted like most of the oil fields in America. We had, we had involved like I mean not not tapping it out completely, but like it involved a huge expenditure of America's own oil resources. And so much so that um, Roosevelt's Secretary of the Interior and later his Petroleum Administer for the War warned in 1943 that, quote, if there should be a World War III, it would have to be fought with someone else's petroleum because the United States wouldn't have it. Who does have the petroleum? Saudi Arabia. And this, of course, you know, goes into the whole deal that FDR made with the Saudis, the Bitter Lake, uh, Adam Curtis documentary goes into all of this after World War Two, which was, you know, that that set in place like the dominant American foreign policy towards the Middle East for basically from then up until now, which is that we provide cover to let the Saudis do basically whatever they want in exchange for that. We are that we will have we are the primary buyers for the Saudi crude reserves like Saudi crude, like that we would have untrammeled access to Saudi crude in perpetuity and it would be on like you know it would be a deal on our terms but like basically we would always always provide cover for like the saudi royal family and they could do whatever they want i.e you know proselytize fundamentalist islam to the rest of the fucking muslim world yeah the the different forms this deal is taken on is very interesting uh and i hope one day someone writes a book just about the military hardware purchases i mean John Dolan, the war nerd, has written very extensively about uh, how Saudis, we get a little bit of a rebate for our weapon sales because the Saudis will buy highly expensive state-of-the-art American military technology with the fundamental understanding that the Saudi military alone could not hold it in an uprising. That would have to be the Americans. Uh, it's an insurance policy. It's yeah. an expensive insurance policy. Hey, you don't want this falling into the hands of al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula or ISIS, do you? Okay, well, you're always going to be at the ready. The One of the more formative events for the modern relationship between the West and the Saudis and the Saudis' understanding of their own kingdom was in the 70s when an uprising took the Grand Mosque in Mecca and Saudi troops were completely unable to retake it just from a ragtag group of assholes who thought their cousin was the Mahdi. Uh, <laughs> they had to use French had, mercenaries, right? They had to use French, former French uh, GIGN commandos. There is an urban legend that because non-Muslims cannot enter the Grand Mosque, that they forced the French convert to Islam before going, and then they went back being Catholics after. But that's never been confirmed. I like to believe it. It's funny, but I don't know that that happened. Uh but there was also sort of a deal where Saudis were buying unusually high volumes of T-bills uh, during times of extensive American deficit spending. So there are – again, this is one of those things that isn't – no one's going to outright say it. Like no one, no one who works at DOD or state is going to go, hey, they're, buy, they're buying our, our – you know, uh, they're buying a bunch of fucking missiles that they have no intention of using and cannot defend. 
uh, just so it's an insurance policy, but hey, we're making out ahead. Or hey, they're buying our T-bills because we buy their oil. It's a rebate deal that but, we have. Yeah, yeah. But and, yeah, it's but it's something. You notice something's going on. And you know, I mean, like just to, just to bring it into the present moment, for example, I mean, like if you've ever wondered why the you know America would back to the hilt Saudi Arabia's genocidal war against Yemen over the Obama Trump and now potentially Biden administrations. I mean, I think it all goes back to essentially this deal that was made after World War II, where like in order for America to be a global military hegemon and to like, you know, stand as a bulwark against communism and prosecute the Cold War, our empire needed unfettered access to Saudi oil. And that continues to this day. And that's why they can do things like carry out the worst ongoing war crime in the world with the full cooperation of the u.s military and government so back to back to dresser here dresser industries was also known for providing covers for cia agents and assets and hw goes to work for dresser in 1948 but things get interesting when the cold war really heats up in 1950 when north korea invades the south now, this is important because it caught the U.S. intelligence community completely off guard and heads had to roll because it was a huge embarrassment for them. So who steps in? Well, a man named Alan Dulles. We've already heard about his brother, John Foster, in his relationship to this story. But Alan Dulles becomes the direct deputy director of clandestine activities. And guess, wouldn't you know it? He just happens to have had a decades-long relationship with the Bush family prior to that. Even as far back as World War I, when Dulles's uncle was serving as Secretary of State, Prescott's father, Samuel Bush, oversaw small arms manufacturing for the War Industries Board, and a young Alan Dulles played a crucial role in the fledgling intelligence services operations in Europe. Later, the families interacted regularly as the Bush clan plied their trade in investment banking and the Dulleses in the law. So, like, basically, the Bushes were the bankers and the Dulleses were the lawyers. And like like th- th- those two were you, th- their relationship united those two sectors of American power, and they were the ones who knew how to get things done. They were the ones that, like, they, they controlled the money and they had the keys to all the doors through banking and the law. So Dulles, at the same time as Dulles is taking over all clandestine operations for like the U.S. intelligence state and national security state, uh, Dresser Industries relocates to Dallas which was becoming a rapidly becoming the center of both the defense industry, but also new oil capital. This was like, you know, this was like the West Texas oil boom was minting these, like these new like titans of industry. And of course, Neil Mallon was at the center of all of it, bringing together sort of these uh, politically conservative, like the elites of Dallas society together with, um, what was uh, then a, 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 a nonprofit group called the Council on World Affairs. And Mallon had been active in the Cleveland branch of that. It had been started in 1918. Basically, it was a localized equivalent of the Rockefeller-backed Council on Foreign Relations, Council on Foreign Relations, the presidency of which Alan Dulles had just resigned to take his post at the CIA. So in September 1951, there was an organizing meeting at Mallon's home which featured uh, a, a group of people in that meeting, which included Fred Florence, who was the uh, founder of the Republic National Bank, 
whose Dallas office tower was a covert repository for CIA-connected ventures. There was a guy named T.E. Braniff, who was a pioneer of the airline industry and a member of the Knights of Malta. Then there was Fred Wooten, who was an official at the First National Bank of Dallas, which would then later go on to employ H.W. Bush in the years between his tenure as CIA director and vice president. And then a guy named Colonel Robert G. Story, who was later named as a liaison between Texas law enforcement and the Warren Commission investigating the assassination of President Kennedy. This group backs Eisenhower for president, and George H.W. Bush is made Midland County chairman on the Eisen-Nixenhower campaigns in both 1952 and 1956. So young George H.W. Bush finds himself sitting at the nexus of basically the Eastern establishment, the incoming administration, and this huge new wealth created by in West Texas oil. Ike becomes president, and the Dulles brothers cement their control over all of U.S. foreign policy. John Foster Dulles becomes Ike's secretary of state, and uh, Alan Dulles becomes head of the CIA. And guess what? Ike's treasury secretary, Robert B. Anderson, was a longtime member of the Dresser Industries Board of Directors. Now, here's the thing. Eisenhower was a general. He was, you know, he was the top general of American forces in the European theater for World War II. I mean, Operation Overlord, D-Day, that was all Eisenhower. And the thing is about generals is that they like delegating authority. He did not want to be involved in the day-to-day grind of politics. So he was happy to sort of farm out a lot of the sort of functions of state to guys like the Dulles brothers. And it's sort of like the, these da- the daily tasks of being president were kind of boring to him and like it was not seen as like his role as an executive to oversee every aspect of them so what did they do with this authority being delegated to them guatemala and iran and of course it's Mellon's council of world affairs that um just like was involved in a lot of this um basically at the beginning of his administration they uh sent 15 members on a three-month world tour for meetings with what the group characterized as quote responsible political and business leaders. Uh, After the group returned, Dulles came to visit with the Dallas Council chapter, and at the same time, the CIA was in the process of creating uh, plausible deniability for what would eventually become its efforts to to topple uh, unfriendly regimes like Arbenz in Guatemala and Mossadegh in Iran. Here's the problem, though. The CIA's charter explicitly prohibits any kind of domestic covert operations. So the way around that is you have to create a you have to create an entire environment, like an entire ecosystem of middlemen to support, you know, support rebels in countries that are targeted for regime change. And during the early days of Dallas uh, of Dresser in Dallas and then eventually Zapata Petroleum, um Dulles was beginning to experiment with running these off-the-books operations. And companies like Dresser and then Zapata Petroleum were like the perfect covers to uh, not just run off-the-books operations, but to fund them as well. Zapata Petroleum is founded in 1953 uh, with investment money from his uncle Herbie Bush, also Yale Skull and Bones, class of 1927. And... uh, just a quick note here about Uncle Herbie. Uh, he also he was inter- instrumental in bringing others, including Eugene Meyer, a Yale graduate and owner of the Washington Post. Uh, Meyer was an, a, one of a number of media titans who were friends with Prescott and fellow Skull and Bones member Henry Luce, 
founder of Time Magazine, and William Paley, who was head of CBS at the time. So, like I said here, like this is this is bringing together like like all these people went to the same schools and were part of the same secret society in it, and then would go on to be the heads of basically banking, like the legal profession, the media, and the intelligence community. And Staten they all Island. Brooklyn, Manhattan, <laughs> the Bronx. So, uh, Felix, you want to uh, let's talk about Zapata Offshore and how that worked. Zapata Offshore, um, also pending on audience. Interesting hats coming soon. Uh, I've been informed I cannot be sued by the Bush crime family or Zapata's successor corporations for my Zapata oil hats that I have made for my friends and family. So uh, we'll see, but uh, no. I, I think I think I may sell those soon. But Zapata Offshoring, it was an interesting group of guys. It was founded in conjunction George H.W. and Thomas Devine, who we had mentioned earlier as the 27-year-old CIA wonderkind who had uh, retired. Yeah, he got all the intelligence. He just did it very quickly. <laughs> yeah. Some guys just some guys are just like they just breeze through it, right? Yeah. Zapata was for it was formed as offshoring was formed as a subsidiary of Zapata Oil. Uh George HW was the president of off, Zapata offshoring. Well, I mean, okay, so like offshore drilling was a, a relatively like it was a newer technology and Zapata offshore had a drilling rig called Scorpion that was they, they were able to move from the Gulf of Mexico to K Sol Bank, which was a very remote island in the Bahamas that was crucially 54 miles north of Cuba. And uh, the K Sol Island had also recently been leased to Howard Hughes, who had his own longstanding CIA ties, as well as what was known as his own private CIA. And these offshore platforms basically... Here's how they worked. George Bush would be given a list of the names of Cuban oil workers who would who wanted place who wanted jobs, and wouldn't you know it, all of those Cubans who got placed in jobs working for Zapata Offshore were connected to Operation Mongoose, which is the CIA program to overthrow Castro. Basically, the oil platforms were the perfect training. They were like they, they gave them jobs, covers, but also basically were were like training camps for these Cubans to do raids on the Cuban homeland during, like, you know, right after Castro had come to power. They call it Operation Mongoose. The other, the other thing that Zapata did, and it was in the perfect business for this, like, if you run an offshoring business, you, you could obscure a lot of, like, transportation of goods, transportation of arms, transportation of people. It can look like anything. Logistics. Offshoring builds it. Yeah. They were a purchasing agent for the CIA, oftentimes. Um, that it makes me think of, yeah, the boats in Bay of Pigs being named Barbara in Houston. Yeah. Again, <laughs> like fucking weird coincidence, right? I mean, like, what, I mean, like, the thing is, like, the connection to Operation Mongoose here takes us back to that original J. Edgar Hoover memo that mentions a Mr. George Bush for the Central Intelligence Agency. What was that memo about? It was about, it was briefing them, the DIA and the CIA, on the FBI's concerns about these anti-Castro Cubans and, like, the chance that they may, I don't know, go off books again and do something crazy. Like, I don't know, kill the president of the United States. And, like, that's the thing. It was, like, 
this is all connected to these off the books operations in the Caribbean and Cuba in particular. Now, of course, Fidel takes power in the Cuban Revolution in 1959, and what does he do? He uh, he declares himself a communist not long after that, but even before that, he begins expropriating the property of several large American firms, specifically agricultural and mineral. And like this is this gets into the idea of like the sort of psychology of a lot of these guys too, because like when we talk about national security what does that really mean and for these guys it means particularly anything in the western hemisphere is ours if you have a country that has resources or anything that we want or need it's ours it is america's we control it not you anything anything like what castro did they take it like these guys they take it as a personal insult to them it's like it's it's like there's an emotional psychological connection here to revolutions like Castro or governments like Arbenz or Mossadegh in Iran that attempt to use the natural resources of their own countries for their own benefit, that, that nationalize them or run them in the way that America would if we had those companies for the benefit of their own people and their own government. That's, that's why they have to go. And like these guys, these guys in the early CIA, the people who like these skull and bonesy guys who fucking did all of these assassinations and coups, there there is an emotional fucking part to this where they really regard it as kind of like an an insult to them personally, like an attack not just on America but on like their 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 very conception of them at like of, of themselves, their own sort of self identity, the idea that these countries could take what is rightfully ours from us just because it happens to be within their borders. It all goes back to jerking off in Geronimo's skull. It's the same act. It's the same thought behind it. It is the wasp as the rightful inheritor of the earth. Yep. And all its corners. The earth tells me there is no sin. And and it's a, just like as Felix, what you're saying earlier about them being basically a paymaster for the CIA. Um, this is quoting here from John Sherwood, who was chief of the CIA's anti-Castro operations in the early '60s, has said, "quote Bush's company was used as a conduit for these funds under the guise of oil business contracts. The major breakthrough was when we were able to, through Bush, to place people in Pemex, the big Mexican national oil corporations. And of course, Zapata's operations were just a a pure continuation of the model created." by dresser industries it was like a one-to-one thing they were basically i mean that's the thing they're basically the same company they're doing the same thing it's just a different name and 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 in zapata george bush was running it rather than working for it uh just just quoting here it says here uh like they they were innovative in borrowing from uh, the in-house history of dresser uh, which he was basically one of the first companies to have to do this bold move of this innovative tax strategy that involved uh, creating a separate company in the uh, country of the Principality of Liechtenstein. Uh, the, the benefit here was that no American taxes had to be paid on international earnings until the money was returned to the United States, if it was returned to the United States at all. And, and basically, like the funds became such that uh, they were not repatriated or they were out of sight of federal authorities. And basically, there was no effective way of knowing where that money went or for what purposes. And Zapata, as like an umbrella corporation, which just consisted of a number of foreign corporations that were incorporated in each country where these drilling rigs operated. And it was basically created by uh, the tax department at Arthur Anderson and the tax lawyers at Baker and Botts. Arthur Anderson, another 
longtime player in American Evil. I mean, even going up to Enron in the fucking late nineties. I mean, like these are the these are the accounting firms that create ways for American firms to not just hide profits from taxation, but to create these vast, vast flows of of capital that are uh, essentially exist in a black box and are unknown to anyone but the people involved. And lo and behold, who's involved? Yeah, people are getting rich off of it, but it's really just, it's all the United States government and intelligence communities. Like, like that's what these corporations are at a certain level. They're allowed to make money, and like I said, a lot of people get rich off of them, but they're still basically fronts, especially in the oil business, for the CIA. And what they want to do, which is fund illegal wars, assassinations, and fucking, yeah, coups wherever they want, because those countries have resources that we need and that we want. So, I mean, it's here where it sort of brings us up to 1963. And H.W. saying, quote, he was somewhere in Texas on that fateful day, unlike virtually every other adult who lived through it, who could probably tell you what fucking pants and shirt they were wearing when they fucking found it. Um, at the time, he, of course, was uh, campaigning for Senate. And this was like, at, at, at this time, Prescott Bush was a senator up until 1962. And then in sort of a surprising move, a lot of people thought that he would, you know, hold that seat forever. But he announced that he would not seek reelection and was sort of getting out of politics at exactly the same time that his son, H.W. Bush, was making a hard shift from the oil industry to politics in America. And he was running for Senate in Texas at the time of the Kennedy assassination. Now, keep in mind, uh, the Bay of Pigs fiasco, which is very much associated with John F. Kennedy and is one of the main reasons, or at least speculated as being one of the main reasons for the Kennedy assassination is essentially blowback from the Bay of Pigs. The Bay of Pigs was an operation that was started under Eisenhower, and it was the brainchild of Alan Dulles. And it was basically given to Kennedy as he took office. And he initially, you know, signed off on it because, like, the ball was already moving. When it failed, that really soured his relationship with the CIA and Alan Dulles in particular. He felt that he had been lied to by the CIA, who, like, up until the Bay of Pigs, was regarded as basically infallible and undefeated in American and sort of global history. And one of the big lies that Kennedy said that he was bought into or that he had been sold by Alan Dulles was that uh, America would not have to intervene very heavily at all. We would just have to like provide a, provide a staging ground for these exiles because as soon as they got there, of course, the, the Cuban people would, would rise up and join them and overthrow Castro uh, and his government. The, um, the natives rising up uh, is a recurring theme in the career of George H.W. and George W. Bush, uh, the uprising that never comes. Uh, this will we'll deal with this later uh, towards the twilight of the second episode. But, of course, George H.W. Bush uh, instructed the Shia of Iraq to rise up against Saddam Hussein, saying that Americans would provide air cover. And then uh, it was just like, oh, sorry, I had something to do that day. Oh, dip. And they got slaughtered by the thousands. And after the Bay of Pigs, uh, Alan Dulles had to launch this basically f a full court press in the media to shore up the agency's creden credentials and reputation. I mean, at the time, 
Kennedy was furious and was quoted by advisors of saying that he wanted to splinter the CIA into a thousand pieces and scatter it into the winds within weeks of the Bay of Pigs disaster, and which left many people speculating about Alan Dulles's future. He eventually was fired by Kennedy. And one of the one of the main reasons uh, that is cited for this firing is that in this media full court press, uh, he went on uh, meet the press shortly after the Bay of Pigs invasion and basically blamed it on Kennedy for not backing up the exiles with like air support and, and military cover. He says that we weren't waiting for the people to rise up on TV. He said we were waiting for, quote, something else that didn't materialize. So Kennedy felt deeply betrayed by these guys. And, you know, probably rightly so, is that like, you know, they were leaving him holding the bag for an operation that they had started long before Kennedy was even in office and then as handed to him as a sure thing day one in, that he got into office. And now it became like, you know, a signature disaster of his first term in, in office was this this failed fucking invasion of Cuba, which like, you know, was a huge, hugely humiliating for um, America because, you know, Cuba was a, you know, a communist country less than 50 miles off America's border. And from here, like, you know, you go back to our JFK episode. I mean, like, it spins out from here. Uh, our good friends Brendan and Noah will be diving even deeper into this in season two of Blowback, which is coming next year, which is going to be all about Cuba and the Kennedy assassination. Like, that, that is the blowback. If these guys and, you know, what happened after that and like the CIA's attempt to reassert itself and, you know, Kennedy's perhaps involvement in trying to clip their wings maybe is possibly a reason that his head was blown off in Dallas. Um, I'll just say here, um, Prescott Bush has been quoted as saying of the Kennedys, I have quote, never forgiven them for the Bay of Pigs fiasco. He's quoted that to many close friends. Uh, he wrote a letter to Alan Dulles's widow in 1969, which was discovered uh, among Dulles's papers at Princeton University. That's where Prescott said, I've never forgiven them. Um, you know, that is really prickish of those guys because they knew that the invasion would not work without air cover. That was all built into it. But they also didn't want to commit. They, didn't, they, were, they were worried that Nick Kennedy wouldn't commit if he knew that. So they went with the old ask for, you know, uh, you know, just like go forward and then just assume that once it started, he would take the next logical step to like, you know, recognize that he was committed now and and send in the air cover. And instead, he said, no, no, we're not going to do that. And then they fucking hated him forever. Like they were trying to trick the guy and give him yeah. some fucking credit for not falling for it. They, so they, um, they were mad at him forever for not falling for the trick that they the, the trap they set for him. It is like posting uh, Psy in the hospital today so a girl will DM you and then calling the girl a cunt because she didn't DM you. Yeah, and of course it's because they, they, think, they think, well, if he just got those bombs in there, we would have won, which, okay, buddy, sure. Yeah, not a foregone conclusion yeah. at all. So, I mean, like that brings us to, yeah, November 1963 in Dallas. Uh, George H.W. Bush is running for senator. And he's running for senator at like, you know, at a time when like the Republican Party, like as a whole. And of course, like, you know, like I said, he had been a, a chair uh, on the, the Eisenhower Nixon campaigns before that. But, you know, th this is this was at a time when like the Republican Party knew that their political future was dependent on 
if they could break the South away from the Democrats, and particularly the states of Florida and Texas. And H.W. Bush running for Senate there was a crucial piece of that political effort. You know, JFK had been just elected in one of the you know, thinnest margins of victory in American history, one that was, you know, election that was probably stolen uh, by the Chicago syndicate for on behalf of his father, Joe Kennedy, the third, you know, you could see all that in Martin Scorsese's The Irishman. But like, you know, they, the Republican Party understood that it was like that their future dependent on regaining the South and like sort of severing the South's tie from the Democratic Party, which was like historically, you know, the South Dixie was the the Democratic Party stronghold. And like that's what the New Deal relied on. And like that was like a source of their power. So, you know, he was campaigning all over Texas possibly even in Dallas on the day of it. So the idea that he would be sort of unaware of the fact that Kennedy was in Dallas riding around in that car with a fucking open top in 1963 because he knew that he had to campaign hard in Texas to win re-election. And George H.W. Bush was, you know, forget any of the conspiracy aspects of it, just on the surface was a crucial part of the Republican effort to stop him from winning Texas and to regain the presidency and a control over the South. So again, the idea that he would be so reticent to share any memories about what he was doing there at that time or seemingly be unaware of why he was there and why Kennedy was there at the time is another very weird thing. Another weird thing that came up was something that came out in 1988. And like this is a, an, another memo that surfaced from November 22nd, 1963, where... And like basically uh, this came out because uh, something called the JFK Records Act was being proposed in late in George H.W. Bush's first term in his presidency because of things like, you know, a a, a renewed American American public's interest in the Kennedy assassination because of things like, you know, Oliver Stone's movie and, you know, like the the expiration date on a lot of these sort of like uh, classifications running out. And, you know, knowing how... (laughs) How many people close to him were, you know, very involved in this? George H. W. Bush had to let this JFK Records Act pass, or else risk looking like out of touch with the public while he was trying to win re-election. And because of that record, that that act, um, another memo was coughed up connecting George H. W. Bush and Zapata Oil to the Kennedy assassination. And that is that basically, almost immediately after the Kennedy assassination, George H. W. Bush phoned the CIA to state that he wanted it to be kept confidential, but he wanted to basically let them know that he, in the weeks leading up to the Kennedy assassination, he had heard from another young Republican, a guy named James Parrott, that he was basically bragging about wanting to kill Kennedy and claiming that they were going to do it in either Houston or Dallas soon. So he was basically ratting on another guy for, possibly being involved with the Kennedy assassination. But here's another, here's another person. And like, this is like, I I really have to be brief here because, you know, running out of time and there is so much fucking more to discuss about this guy. But there is a guy named George DeMoran Schilt, who is a huge figure in the Kennedy assassination and has a very interesting connection to the George HW Bush and the Bush family. George DeMoran Schilt is a Russian emigre and wouldn't you know it, a petroleum geologist. And in 1976, when George H.W. Bush was director of the CIA, the agency received a letter from George. I'm going to call him George de Moron shit from now on because, you know, I'm not going to. Fucking roasted. 
George uh, Doo Doo de shit. Um, he he wrote a letter directly to George H W Bush, director of the CIA, pleading with his for his help. The letter says, maybe you will be able to bring a solution into the hopeless situation I find myself in. My wife and I find ourselves surrounded by some vigilantes. Our phone bugged and we are being followed everywhere. Either FBI is involved in this or they do not want to accept my complaints. We are driven to insanity by this situation. Tried to write stupidly and unsuccessfully about Lee H. Oswald and must have angered a lot of people. Could you do something to remove this net around us? This will be my last request for help and I will not annoy you anymore. His staff and ends with a sideways frown. <laughs> his staff assumed that this guy was a crank and asked if he knew him. And then wouldn't you know it? George H.W. Bush confirmed that he did. In an official response said, I do know this man, DeMoran Schultz. I first met him in the early 40s. He was an uncle to my Andover roommate later and later serviced in Dallas in the 50s, maybe then surfaced when Oswald shot to prominence. He knew Oswald before the assassination of President Kennedy. I do not recall his role in all of this. Now, his connection to this guy is considerably more than the fact that he was an uncle to his old roommate at Andover. Basically, George de Morenschild and the whole Morenschild family is a family that basically is, is, like I said, they're Russian emigres who left Russia after the revolution and have been basically at this nexus of sort of a white Russian anti-communist the oil industry and the CIA in exactly the same way that the Bush family is. It's just, they have threads everywhere, but basically George himself is, is, is a, is a character because him and his wife basically shepherded Oswald and his Russian wife into this community in Dallas. That was sort of the white Russian community there. Like it was like a hub of white Russian anti-communists who had like left the Soviet Union and settled in America. And so, lo and behold, a lot of them ended up in Dallas. And this is a very weird thing. He's a character in Don DeLillo's Libra. He's a fairly big character in that book. Um, because like he in the years from 1962 to 1963, he was probably the most influential person in Lee Harvey Oswald's life. Like I said, like he got him jobs. He was like socially like intimately involved with him and his wife like he looked after their baby and was like after oswald was killed like they they basically protected oswald's wife from scrutiny and like gave her like the script to say that and, like she was the one who was like you know other than the the gun itself was the smoking gun of saying like yeah oswald did it because of x y and z the weird thing about this is that like why would Oswald and his wife be shepherded into this like white Russian community after the fact that Oswald had defected to the Soviet Union as a Marxist and was like going around New Orleans handing out like hands off Cuba pamphlets? Yeah, it's pretty it's, weird. It's, very, wife, it's very odd. His his wife was the daughter of a KGB colonel. That seems like it'd be awkward dinner conversation with all those anti communist Ruskies. And, of course, uh, DeMoran Schultz and his wife uh, testified to the Warren Commission, which spent more time with them than any other witnesses excepting Oswald's widow, Marina. They basically characterized him as a colorful and eccentric character, but uh, steered away every time uh, Moran Schultz recounted another name from the staggering list of his influential friends and associates. Uh, in the end, the commission basically concluded that it was all coincidences and nothing more. By the way, 
who was the serving member on the Warren Commission? Alan Dulles, the guy Kennedy had just fired. Again, seems pretty strange. Whether you want to chalk these up to all coincidences or not, you could, but you know we're not in that business. We're in the business of innuendo. We are about the- slandering, and the beauty part is you cannot slander the dead. They can't sue you. It's awesome. I mean, there's just there there's just too much more about just basically like and like George DeMorin Schultz's whole family, like his father was involved in George H.W. Bush's grandfather. And like they, like they were very influential in like, like lobbying the government of Woodrow Wilson to get America involved in World War II. They were, they were <laughs> oh very influential God. in reopening. Get those bonds paid back. They were very uh, influential in reopening the uh, oil fields in Azerbaijan and Baku back to like sort of like a, a American... Oh. Uh, like even after like you know the the Soviets had taken power, like they just talk about full circle there. Yeah, my God, the it coast like, did that too. I think. Yep. Yeah. I mean, like it's just it's just it, the Morin Schultz family. It's like it's like a perfect sort of international mirror to the Bush family, and that they are these sort of Zelig figures who just happen to be at the nexus of like these major world events and are like very influential in, in like the oil and intelligence community and, and the cold war. Wait, there's, there's just one thing here about George. I need, I need to share before we wrap it up. Okay. So yeah, uh, before settling in Dallas, he was mainly known as quote, an international businessman, but uh, quoting from Baker here, the timing of his overseas ventures was remarkable invariably when he was passing through town a covert or even overt operation appeared to be unfolding an invasion a coup that sort of thing for example in 1961 as exiled cubans and their cia support team prepared for the bay of pigs invasion in guatemala george the morin schultz and his wife passed through guatemala city on what they told friends was a month-long walking tour of the central american isthmus then the DeMoran Schultz appeared in Mexico on oil business just as a Soviet leader arrived on a similar mission, even happened to meet with the communist official. In a third instance, they landed in Haiti shortly after before an unsuccessful coup against its president that the U.S. Finger, US had its fingerprints all over. And uh, just one more thing here. Uh, they also had a connection to William F. Buckley's family and the Venezuelan uh, Pantapec oil firm which was run by William F. Buckley's father, who, of course, uh, the Buckley boys, just like the Bushes, had been in Skull and Bones. And then William Buckley, like H.W., was a pansy wannabe CIA agent in South America as well. And probably, like George H.W. Bush, William Buckley remained a CIA agent for his entire life. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, like I said here, like I, I, there, there are so many, so many threads that lead the Bush family the Malins, the Harrimans, the Morgenschelts, just so many of these families and like the people in them and their business associates and their fucking school days and everyone, there are just so many threads that lead them into this like nexus of like the Cold War, oil, intel- the CIA, anti-Castro exiles and like the Bay of Pigs and then ultimately a bullet ripping through Kennedy's head on Dallas in 1963. Like my brain is pouring out of my ears, just trying to keep all of them together in my head. But I think that takes us basically up until like the first major part of George H.W. Bush's career, which, like I said, culminates with John F. Kennedy getting his head blown off in Dallas in 1963. And, you know, to the extent that he was personally involved in it, I mean, just like just consider the fact that like the day of it happening, he took it upon himself to officially rat on someone else for potentially threatening to kill the president. 
And then when he became director of the CIA, got a, a personal letter from George himself saying, please help me. I foolishly talked about Oswald. Oh, by the way, a year after he sent that letter, uh, George DeMorenshill committed suicide. Well, Bill O'Reilly was trying to go interview him. Oh, you're right. Oh, I did not know oh, that. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, he, think, told, he, li- think- he told a lying story that he was knocking on the guy's door when he heard a shotgun go off and he blew his brains out. Uh, but it, he was like a, a young reporter and he was set to interview him on the day he killed himself. Well, maybe there was no foul play and he just really didn't want to talk to Bill I mean, O'Reilly. totally fair. <laughs> Very fair. That would be funny if it just all got cleared up. Like H.W. talked to Mammon and Moloch. <laughs> uh, they got it all straightened out. Like no one's going to bother his family. And then like Bill O'Reilly just starts bothering him. And he's like, well, guess I got to kill myself. Yeah, I don't want to have this conversation. This guy's so annoying. I don't want to talk to this splotchy Irish Sasquatch. <laughs> <laughs> well there you go i mean this is part yeah. one the last the last thing the last thing he saw was just like a big fucking gross finger pointing in his face going you're being disingenuous you're being disingenuous that just he just painted his wall with his brains <laughs> yeah blew his head off with a shotgun that's uh it's probably because uh george hw bush wouldn't write back you're right like, uh, yeah. dear mr i'm too good to call or write my fans <laughs> <laughs> There is so much more, though, about uh, the whole yeah. Morgan Schultz family that is just it, it, it like it, it broke my brain trying to follow all of these different connections. And like, I, I hope I've done an OK job of summarizing this incredibly dense book and like all of the connections that Russ Baker seems to be intimating here. And again, like, you know, take them for what they are, like, the, like, you know, the motivations for why someone or why these group of people might want to kill Kennedy uh, would you know? I mean, like there, there, there's a number of them you can pick from. None of them add up to anything bulletproof or any like any totally satisfactory explanation for what happened on that day or like why Kennedy was killed. But I mean, it, it it's it's interesting and like I said, like it just it does all seem to come back to like oil, the CIA, and then also keep in mind the mafia as well and their whole the money that they had invested in Cuba and how much Meyer Lansky himself was basically a point man for all American business in Cuba at the time, what they stand to, what they standed to lose from Castro taking power in that country and what they stood to gain from it coming back under U S control is also pretty compelling. And like in- Santo Traficante jr. Who is sort of the boss of the Tampa mob, yeah. the most important mafioso in Florida his last words were reputedly, we never should have done Kennedy. Take that as you will. I mean, I assume mob guys, you just have to figure they lie all the fucking time. And that's the best lie to get at, get out if you're on your way out. Like, oh, yeah, yeah I killed a president. I absolutely. I mean, I, I, I but it's, it's I don't know. Yeah, it raises an eyebrow. But at the same time, I totally could see Kennedy gets killed by Oswald, just like they said. And everyone in the mob is like, oh, holy frick. You see that? And one guy is just like. Yeah, yeah, we you know what happened, and they're like what? And it's like ah, don't worry about it. And then they just all assume <laughs> yeah. they did it because yeah. like somebody wants to be a badass. That's the problem with the mafia connection to JFK is like I believe there's something there, but when someone is like I did it, it's like well you're all lying. Yeah, you just lie all day. Like there's just these guys li- sitting around smelling like pastrami and lying. And, and here's the thing though, like the, the Kennedy assassination is always kind of a red herring. Because it is this singular event 
And people right. are obsessed with these unanswered questions about who did it and why or how many shots were fired. And it's all sort of minutia. And you can like take or leave, you know, any number of like theories or stories or explanations that you one can tell about this. And, you know, we're telling a story about the Bush families, like, you know, if not their involvement in it, then there's certainly their proximity to a lot of the threads that, that led up to those event, that event. And here's the thing, though. Like, it doesn't really matter whether you believe Russ Baker 100% or not, because what he lays out here, and which are, you know, matters of factual record, it doesn't really matter whether they were, like, intimately involved with pulling the trigger on Kennedy or not, or whether, it, or, or indeed, it may just be an astonishing array of coincidences and, like, names and people and associations that people are eager to read too much into. But even accepting that, that this is all just, you know, drivel and just like, you know, just just vague intimations and guilt by association. I mean, the story about the Bush family from one generation to the next and H.W.'s life in particular is one that tells a very real story about like the how power works in America and how America, like the, the American like military national security state how it rules the world and how it governs itself in the years following World War II. Yeah, he is there for all of it. He he's the cigarette smoking man. Well, there you go. I got it. We went long on this one. Should probably wrap it up here, but part two, um as soon as we can compile all of the documents and the research. Gotta get all the documents too. I think part two will have to deal with with Watergate, Iran Contra, and uh, the Gulf War. Yes. So there we go, guys. George H.W. Bush, Poppy, A Life and Career, Part 1. Not got that. Not got that. Until next time, bye-bye. What do you think when people make fun of your language? Like, I get the Dickens on Iran, or someone is in deep doo-doo. You see it coming back. What do you think? I don't mind. You got to be what you are generationally uh, kids I don't I don't you have to be what you are in life you don't have to style it so you're into the latest fad or the latest thing and I I'm not going to change Michael Kramer of New York magazine has called it the wimp factor you know Michael Kramer yeah he'll never play linebacker for the Chicago Bears have you ever seen him George Will has said the silly unpleasant sound Bush is emitting as he traipses from one conservative gathering to another is a thin, tinny arf, the sound of a lapdog. Anything you want to say to George Will? Just that he'll never play linebacker for the Chicago Bears. Have you ever seen him? I'll put my record out there with anybody. You know that I was shot down two months after my 20th birthday fighting for my country? I didn't detect any wimp factor there you know that we had to sit, my wife and I, and watch a child wrenched from our hearts in six months of cancer, knowing she was going to die? A little strength comes from that. Do you know that I've run agencies like the CIA and restored the morale out there by making tough decisions, moving people around, not jumping out trying to get credit? But if his complaint is that I'm loyal to this president, guilty as charged.